Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We just finished a series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and we spent a lot of time especially toward the end of that series, on spiritual gifts, as I'm sure you remember. And one of the things that emerges when you do a study like that, when you study 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 particularly, which is where we spent a lot of time in the last few weeks of that series, is that a lot of confusion surrounding the gifts disappears when you realize that Paul is addressing how we behave here, in the assembly, at church, so many of the things that people have taken, especially just little, you know, take one verse out of context and say, here's what Paul says about tongues. See, nobody, and not everybody speaks with tongues. Not everybody uh, can do this. Not everybody should do this. It's better if you do that. He is talking in those three chapters about how we behave, how we operate in the gifts in the assembly. When we are assembled and uh, you remember, I'm sure, that earlier in the series, we talked about how the Holy Spirit is not just here to manifest himself with the gifts. He's not just here to manifest himself in the assembly. In fact, when we, uh, we spent most of our time, we do spend most of our time as believers unassembled. You know, when I say the assembly, I mean when we meet here for church. But this is not most of our week, is it? Might be the most exciting part of our week. It's the part I look forward to the most. It is super important. But we are not assembled most of the time. And I understand we don't all have to be assembled. Uh, there is power in agreement when two, when three believers get together. There is something, uh, it, you are blessed more than you know if you have one solid believer in your life as a friend in high school, in college, on, on, uh, at work, in your day-to-day -day life. Somebody you can connect with on that level. But gathering like we're gathered here today, specifically for the purpose of corporate worship, uh, to bringing our tithes and offerings, feasting on the Word of God, this is special. And as a side note, uh, I still get a little huffy when... Uh, there are sporting events, school events, club events, any sort of organizations that make plans for Sunday mornings that conflict with people's commitment to church. But it makes me think, <clears throat> there's a guy who I follow on Facebook who goes off on rants on particular issues from time to time, and he'll post several things over several days. And the thing he was on latest was uh, public profanity, uh, how we need to take a stronger stand against people cursing in public. And I get it. I have, uh, I've like been walking into a store or someplace and some kid will be out there with a foul mouth and I'll just stop. Hey, your mom know you're talking like that? Let's go. Especially if I know the kid and I know his parents, right? Uh, but I also, I remember something Billy Duguid said years ago. I don't know if how many of you remember Billy Duguid. Anybody remember Billy Duguid? Yeah, pretty funny guy. And he said, uh, why should it surprise us when the world talks like the world? He goes, I, 
I get it. He says, I don't like to hear that language. I don't like my kids hearing that language, but that's, they're sinners. Sinners are going to talk like sinners. He says, uh, here's what I do instead of complaining to them. He goes, I just talk more and more like a Christian. He said, we were in line at Walmart, and some guy in front of me started cussing. And my, he said, my son, he's a little kid, asked him, said, why, why is that guy talking like that? Because he's an unbeliever, but we, we believe in Jesus, don't you? Aren't you glad to be saved? Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus? Doesn't it just make you happy? And just starts basically preaching there in line. Well, that's going to make some people upset too, isn't it? So anyway, uh, all I mean, the only connection that I'm making is maybe instead of protesting uh, everything that, that people schedule for Sunday, we just don't go. We come to church. All right, make it inconvenient for them. Sorry, I don't do I got church. Well, that's inconvenient for us. Well, it's inconvenient for me when you schedule it during church. We have to be more and more committed to gathering when we gather, no matter what is, is trying to crowd in there and compete with us, the gathering, right? Um, anyway, that's not really what I want to talk about. This is a message that I've decided to call the unassembled life of faith. And when I mean unassembled, I just mean the day-to-day when we are not all here together. And it'll probably go a few weeks. Uh, At least I have discovered it's going to go another week. I did a message years ago called 10 Things. I think I've preached it twice. It's been a long time since I've I've been around to it. Uh, And it bothers me because it's not the kind of message I get excited about writing or preaching because it's a bullet point, you know, 10 points, here's 10 things. And the only reason it bothers me is because it's, it was more well-received than most messages that I preach. So even though it's not my cup of tea, apparently was most people's cup of tea. So I will probably preach that again soon. I bring it up because I'm borrowing some of the principles from it here. Uh, but first, let me just share with you from the scriptures a very important promise that Jesus made. In John chapter 16, verse 33, we read this. And this is Jesus speaking. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Where's the promise in there? You have tribulation. Different uh, translations say, in this world you will have trouble. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior. Right? Are we standing on this promise? Jesus said, I'm having tribulation. I'm not going to be satisfied until I have tribulation. He spoke it. I claim it. Tribulation cometh. No, we ain't doing that, are we? But how many of you believe him when he says it? In this world, you have tribulation. But there is a a word of assurance there, isn't there? I've overcome the world. I have overcome the world. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Notice he doesn't say if you fall into various trials. It's going to happen. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be trouble. And there are plenty more promises like that, plenty more statements like that in Scripture. The thing is... Nothing in the Word of God indicates that if you just do everything right, nothing unpleasant or difficult will ever happen to you. Hear me? The Bible gives us no reason to believe that if you do everything right, nothing difficult, nothing unpleasant, 
will ever happen to you. Guess what else the Bible pretty much assures us of? You will not do everything right. Something I used to make a point of saying much more often is this, or something like it. The Bible makes clear that we are more than conquerors, that we have been promised the victory, but there is no victory without a battle. There's no such thing as a victory if there's no fight. So let's get that down. You will have trouble. You will have trouble. Tribulation, battles, trials, just as the Lord causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, and that's good rain, by the way. This broken world we live in doesn't discriminate. Creation is groaning under the weight of sin, and as a result, we live in a world still inhabited by an enemy, by the way, that introduces all kinds of trouble into our lives and into the lives of everyone else on the planet. You remember a few weeks ago when I uh, was talking about things, there were five or six of them, I think, things that don't equal uh, spiritual maturity? Like we can't just assume that just because this is happening, somebody's operating and gets the spirit, doesn't mean they're spiritually mature. One of those things was just because they are uh, going through a trial. Well, they're a believer and they're going through a trial. Uh, the devil must have singled him out because he must be more spiritually mature. No, everybody goes through trials. The question is, how do we respond in those trials? And this is where the list thing kind of comes into play, but I'm going to be addressing it a little more broadly this morning because I think some of us need a little bit of a kick in the pants or wake-up call or something, a reminder of who we are in Christ. Because the short answer is this, we respond in faith. And when I say that, I'm not talking about a simple, naive faith that says everything's fine. No matter what's happening, everything's fine because God's in control. I'm talking about faith in specific instructions, commandments, and promises from God. Now listen, I'm going to say some things here that you've heard maybe a dozen times, maybe a hundred times, but there is a reason some of these things get repeated over and over and over. Sometimes, and probably most of you can relate to this, that maybe there's something, a piece of scripture you read many, 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 many times or heard it many, many times and something happened or maybe you just reached, I needed to hear it 98 times. It wasn't until I heard the 98th time that it made sense. Something clicked and everything changed. I can remember... Uh, as most of you who know me know this, I was not particularly athletic. I know. I know what you're thinking, Scott. 200 plus pounds of twisted steel, and you're telling me you weren't an athlete. <laughs> I did play Little League baseball, and I was decent at it. I was a pretty, uh, I was decent, I wasn't a superstar. But I was a pretty dependable hitter, and I was going through a slump. I mean, I'm swinging away and, and striking out, and I'm missing practice and games. It wasn't just the pressure of the games. And Richard Dunkman, who, was, uh, who along with Dad, uh, was uh, one of the coaches of the mighty liners. Ken Beatty, I'd have been involved in that a little bit too, right? And uh, he's pitching during batting practice, and he watches me. 
And uh, he made a correction in my stance. He had done that years ago, but he said, Scotty, keep your eye on the ball. Now, I'd been playing Little League for I don't know how many years at that point. Keep your eye on the ball. Everybody says keep your eye on the ball. Everybody knows keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Pay attention. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. I nod. He says, no, listen to me. Listen to me, Scotty. Keep your eye on the ball. Watch it all the way into your bat. What? Because he saw. He was watching my eyes. What he's doing? He's pitching. And I would start to... I'm looking at the fence. I'm looking at the fielders. I take my eye off the ball at the last second. As soon as he told me that, as soon as I realized, oh, keep your eye on the ball means keep your eye on the ball. <laughs> crack, crack, crack. I never hit anything but home runs. After, no, I'm kidding. That's not true. But <laughs> I started hitting the ball again. Not because I learned something new, but because finally it clicked in a way that it made sense. So here we go. I wonder what you think I'm going to say. Faith begins where the will of God is known. When I say we respond to these trials, this trouble that we're promised in faith, you need to understand what I'm saying. Faith begins where the will of God is known. Let's assume you are under attack. You have faith, and you know God has promised victory. How do you appropriate that victory? Let's even assume that this isn't just some common worldly trouble, but that this attack is of specific demonic origin. And maybe you know enough of Scripture to know that Jesus gave his disciples and us authority over unclean spirits. So what do you do? This is an attack. I have authority. Uh, I banish all demonic presence and all unclean spirit from my life, my house, my town. In fact, since I have authority, I hereby command all demons to be bound in hell and never come near me again. If you have enough faith, can you do that? No, because we have been given that authority, have we? For that matter, can you speak to your circumstances? Disease, financial trouble, relationship trouble, anything that way. <coughs> well, let's look at Jesus. I tell you something. I was really taken to task by somebody uh, more than one person, but one person really dug their heels in on this. Back during in the early days of COVID, because I would not stand with certain ministers, wasn't just one, uh, certain ministers were calling uh, on TV, on Facebook, and, and other forms of media for us to band together and curse COVID out of existence. If we will just speak to this thing, it has to leave planet Earth, and it'll just die and never, never be around again. And I thought, Man, I would love if that happened, but I don't see a scriptural leg or verse to stand on. What did Jesus do? Did Jesus banish, banish leprosy from the face of the earth? He didn't, did he? What did he do? Healed everybody who came to him for healing. He didn't banish poverty. He didn't banish hunger. He didn't banish hatred. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He loved those who despised him. 
And when he was faced with a demonic presence, he cast it out of the afflicted person. Now, where I'm going with this is pretty simple. If we are to respond in faith to every circumstance, and faith begins where the will of God is known, the key is to know the will of God in every situation. If we want to respond biblically, if we want to respond like Jesus did to every situation, and it's the only way to be in faith, we have to know what God's will is for our situation. And frankly, that's the tricky part. Because if only there was some way we could know the will of God, if there was some code, if there was some secret way to enter into some state where the inscrutable will of God were made known to us, can anybody think, I'm just looking for some help here. If knowing the will of God is crucial, because I can't exercise faith without knowing the will of God, well, that's great news. But God, how am I supposed to know your will? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He wrote it down, didn't he? Now, it's not just what you hear on Sunday mornings or in small groups or on Pastor Mike's Wednesday night message. I can't tell you how often I think about this, but you know how often I remember to say anything about it. If you need a pick-me-up in the middle of the week, if you need encouraged, tune in. Every, every uh, Wednesday, this gets posted uh, on our podcast, YouTube channel. Uh, Pastor Mike's got an encouraging and challenging word. I listen to it every week, usually while I'm mowing. It comes up right in my feed, and uh, he'll preach you happy. He'll step on your toes. Uh, he'll get you going. But even if, they, even if you listen to it every week, even if you're here every week, that's not all you need. You need to read the word. You need to study the word. You need to get it in you. Do you remember King Asa? I'm not going to preach my King Asa sermon. Many of you have heard that more than once. He was one of the early kings in Judah. It was like uh, well, Solomon, Rehoboam. Maybe it was after Rehoboam. Abijah. And then Asa. Early king in Judah. And then you can read his story in 2 Chronicles 14, 15, and 16. And I advise you to. It's a good story. Uh, but he was a pretty good king. And his story really is one of my favorites. Uh, but like I said, I'm not preaching his story, just one little piece of it today. And you need to know he did the right thing right off the bat. I mean, he got serious, uh, cleaning up certain things, uh, digging into the, the law. And uh, this was important because as a rule, as you read through the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, you see that if you had a good and godly king, things went well for the country. The people were blessed. So this wasn't just good for Asa, it was good for Judah and uh, they were in, in good times, okay? In fact, let's read this. Second Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in verse 4. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. Boom. He sought the Lord. He observed the law, the commandments. You know, dig into the word. And presto, what's the result? Peace and safety. But then, still in chapter 14, first half of verse 9, then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. 
and 300 chariots. Uh, this was an army that was uh, significantly larger than Judah's at the time. So the short version so far, Asa was a good king, he's doing the right thing, and trouble came. He was a good king doing the right thing, and trouble still came. What's important, though? How did he respond? Because how would you respond? I spent my time in devotion. I memorized scriptures. I went to church. And this trouble comes, and you're like, how can this happen? This isn't right. This isn't fair. No, what did Asa do? Verse 11, and Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And it worked, of course. God routed the Ethiopians, and it was a great victory for God, for Judah and Asa. But look at Asa's prayer here. It's not a panic, help, if you can, please don't let this happen to us. No, it's a recitation of what he knew about God's omnipotence, an expression of confidence in the relationship, the covenant relationship he had uh, as, a, as, as an Israelite. The omnipotence, it's nothing for you. I know you can do this. You are God. I know this much about your character, about your divine attributes. It's nothing for you to help you. It doesn't matter if there's one of us, 300,000 of us. It doesn't matter if there's a million of them or two million of them. This is easily uh, within your ability. And then he says, it's, it's don't let this happen to us. It's like these are mortals. Don't let man prevail against you. Don't let mere mortals prevail against you. Now, how did he know this stuff about God? Because of seeking God, learning of him. And it talks about in the law, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had access to the writings of David and Solomon. So he had Psalms. He knew some things about the character of God. The very next king, Jehoshaphat, had a nearly identical situation and nearly identical results. The point is, trouble came to both these kings, these good kings, God-seeking kings, and neither of them had to run around in circles, find a copy of the law, wringing their hands, wondering how to get out of this pickle. Because they stood on what they knew. They knew it before trouble came. They knew the word, so they knew God's will. So when trouble came, they stood on the word they knew. Now you fast forward a couple of years to another good king named Josiah. He was a young boy. He was only eight years old when he inherited the throne. Uh, but he was surrounded by some good people, and he had the good sense to listen. He was humble enough to receive their counsel. And when he was 16 years old, he began to seek God on his own. He'd been trained well, educated well, and four years later, at age 20, he begins some serious reforms because the nation had wandered so far from God. And it was 16 years into these reforms, 18 years after becoming king, and now he's 26, 
he takes on the task of cleaning and restoring the temple, which had fallen into complete disarray. And he sends the workmen. He heads uh, this dude, I can't remember his name. I'll probably come across it in the, in the scripture I read here in a minute. He said, take, take this money, deliver it to the workmen in the temple, and get this, get this work started. And when they were there, uh, one of the priests who was there with the workmen finds a book. And you know what it was? A handwritten copy of the law. And the hand that wrote it was Moses. They find the book of the law. And the foreman brings it to the king. And he says, uh, hey, work's going great. Uh, the workmen have been paid. And oh, by the way, Hilkiah the priest found this book. And Josiah says, uh, read to me out of it. So the guy starts reading him the book. It says here in 2 Chronicles 34, beginning in verse 19, thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. This is a fascinating little mini-episode because he's a good king. He's doing everything he knows. And while we're at it, and, and, and things are going great. He's eight years old. 16, he gets serious on his own, digs in, starts uh, instituting these reforms at age 20. Six years later, they're in the temple. They find this book, starts reading. Oh, this is the law. Let's read it. Oh, no! We're not doing any of this! We're in trouble. We are in... You got trouble, my friends. Right here, I say trouble, right? No, I'm not going to go there. But his heart was right. You can read the rest of his story later, and I, and I recommend it. But do you see the difference? You had two good kings, Asa and Jehoshaphat, encounter big trouble. And they don't panic. They respond in faith because they knew the word. The third good king was not facing an enemy. He's not facing any immediate threat, but he responds in panic because he doesn't know the word. But he knew enough about God to know they were in trouble if they didn't get to know it and fast. Now, who do you want to be? This kind of makes me think. People say, would you rather be poor and healthy or rich and sick? And I always just want to say, I want to be rich and healthy. Why is that not an option? It is an option, right? But here's what I want to know. Do you want to know God's word and have trouble? Or be ignorant of God's word and have no trouble? Now, what I want is to know God's word and have no trouble. But that's not an option, is it? Guess what, though? It's also not an option to be ignorant of God's word and have no trouble. Trouble is coming to everybody. So the only question is, do you want to know God's word when it comes or not? Do you want to know how to respond in faith when trouble comes? 
We must know God's word. And it's not enough to have access to it. Jehoshaphat didn't have time to gather the priests, blow the dust off the pages, and find a verse that would help him out of this situation. Josiah, thank God, did have that time. And he had to do just that, literally. They dig this thing out of the rubble, and they had to learn it in a hurry. So what do we do? We hide God's word in our hearts. Part of, that, part of that pledge we said, isn't it? Scripture memory is a wonderful thing, but there's more to hiding his word in our hearts than that. This is one of the best aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. It's not fair of us, I don't think, to ask God to reveal something to us in times of trouble that we've never bothered to seek out when we had time, before the trouble. Not when he has made knowledge of his will so abundantly available. And when circumstances arise, when trouble comes, we pray, and the Spirit himself speaks to us and says, you remember where, the, where in the Bible it says this, and we remember a piece of Scripture. Oh, yes, and this is what we stand on when we pray. We might have to look up the reference. Thank God we live in a day and age where that's never been easier. Type in two words. I think I remember two words from a scripture. You type them in, you'll probably hit it. But the Spirit reminds us that it's there. Reminds us. Because it's not brand new to us. We've read it. We've heard it. It is in us. But we have to be willing to put it there. And, when we, and we, when we remember it, when the Holy Spirit brings it to our remembrance, we find it, we see it again, what are we going to do with it? Word of faith, people. Word of faith, people. When we remember the word of God, when we remember what God's will is in a circumstance, what do we do with that? We speak it. We say it. This is what we pray. Not, oh dear God, help me please. But God, you promised me this. It says in your word that you would do this, that when I face this, this would happen. When I did this, this would be the result. I've done this. I'm trusting you. I'm standing on your word, and I expect to see this, and I'm going to praise you until I do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, there are some ultra-Orthodox Jews that I think even to this day literally do this. They have little boxes hanging around their house. They, they tie them around, at least during prayer time. They're, so they're on the back of their hands. They're on their forehead, you know, between their eyes. Uh, Oh, phylacteries and uh, what's the other? Uh, tefillin or tefillin, tefillin, I don't know how to say it. They actually tie these things to them. But the meaning here is, is really symbolic and it's really important. You know, talking about on your hands, between your eyes, around your house. Everything that you do, all the work that you do, this is what the hands signify. Everything that you see and think about, this is the between your eyes. And, and even your dwelling place needs to be full of the Word of God. You need to be seeing your life 
through the lens, through the filter of the Word of God. God does not live in this building. He is with us. He's among us right now. He's in us right now. And finally, for now, because we need to wrap this up and continue next week. I mentioned that part of the pledge, the ranger uh, the, the, the recited the pledge of the Bible. We just heard it in Psalm 119.11. It says this, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I'm going to make two very quick observations. And then I will close. In fact, just to let you know, I really am close to closing. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You hide it in your heart. I hide it in my heart. God doesn't hide it in your heart. It's his word. He gives it to you. It's up to you to hide it in your heart. Speak it. Read it. Read it out loud. Read it to, to one another. Your word have I hidden in my heart. That I might not sin against you. The first thing we should be concerned about as we hide his word in our hearts is not to avoid trouble, to get healed, to get prosperous. The important thing about hiding his word in our heart is so that we can do his word, and doing his word means not sinning. We're going to take a closer look at Psalm 119 next week, and I think the context of this one verse uh, will make it richer for you. Meanwhile, what's the big deal about sinning against him? We all do it, after all. The big deal here is that there was only ever and ever remains one way, one remedy for that problem. You see, sin separates us from God, makes us unfit for his presence. And yeah, we all do it. But I don't think it scares us enough that we can't do anything about it. Stand up with me. All y'all, if you can. I don't think it bothers us enough that there's nothing we can do about our sin. We can't undo it. God is good. And in our sinful state, we are not fit for his presence. He's a merciful God. He is love. But he is also perfectly just. Stop talking for just a minute up there, buddy. Perfect justice mandates that sin must be punished. Sin must be judged. And the penalty is death. This is what happens when you are separated. If sin separates you from God and God is the author of life, you remove yourself from the source of life. That's spiritual death, to be spiritually separated from God. And God in his justice has to judge sin. God in his love wants us to be reconciled to him. So there's a tension there. He wants us to come out of death and into life. 
but sin must be judged. So here's how he worked it out. He gave his only son. Knock it off. He gave his only son to the world. Jesus took all of your sin, all of my sin, all the sin of the world in himself. And God poured his judgment out on Jesus. That's what the cross was all about. The bill is paid, and that's good news. But we should never forget that that bill was a steep bill. It was a high price. That torturous death on the cross. But that shed blood, he shed it willingly. Jesus did. Because he could see to the other side of it. He knew it was going to bring us back or make the way to bring us back into right relationship with the Father. He was buying our freedom. He was buying us out of slavery to sin. So if the work's done, and it is, what do we have to do to be saved? You will be, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The invitation for everybody right now is, will you be saved? Have you been saved? What's holding you back? Most of you know. Most of you in here are believers, I get it. But most of you know what I'm going to say. I don't know where every single person in this room stands. And if you have never personally prayed that prayer, given your heart to Christ, acknowledged the price he paid for your salvation, confessed him as your Lord, then any ritual you went through as a child, any membership thing you signed, none of that means anything. Have you bowed your knee before Jesus Christ as Lord? You're going to have the opportunity to do that. It's a simple prayer that's going to be my privilege to lead you in. And it's open to everybody. When I pray a prayer, when I pray the prayer, and then when we start singing, I want you to come up here and let me pray for you. But first I have a word. This is a little bit unusual time. We're supposed to have words of prophecy and knowledge and stuff during praise and worship. But this is specifically related to the altar call. Now, it's broad enough that it might mean more than one person, but I know there's one person God has in mind, and I'm pretty sure I know who it is, but I'm not going to call you out. And let me... I don't have a thus saith the Lord and a text... But here's clearly what I have, as clearly as, I, as clear as I can make it. You're not in a state of shaking your fist at God. I know some people who are like that too. You're not being utterly dismissive. You're just kind of, eh, you know, not saying I don't believe in God. I'm saying, what's he really done for me? 
It's easy for you to talk about how God loves you. If God loved me, my life would be going a little bit better right now. I'm not saying I don't want anything to do with God. I'm saying he needs to make the first move. I'm not saying that to be dismissive. This is how you feel. I'm not opposed to God. I just need him to show me that he loves me, and then I'll respond. And here's God's response. I showed you. I showed you. How'd you show me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He, this is how God commends his love to the world, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, he said, I've got more for you. Oh, I have got wonderful things for you in this life. And when this life's done, I've got heaven for you. Meanwhile, it's your move. What are you waiting for? Why would you wait one more day, one more hour, one more minute before you just gave Jesus Christ the life that he purchased with his blood? He's not asking you to do anything, to pay anything, other than simply to receive the gift that he's offering that he paid for himself. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, thank you for being here in our presence, doing what you have promised to do, convicting the sinner of their need, convicting the sinner of sin, and moving them toward Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.